0: playing the piano and Rachel we're gonna have to repair that piano after Rachel got through with it this morning wonderful to see how God has given us so many gifted people musically and academically and uh, in every area of our school life I think we ought to say a word of congratulations also to uh, our soccer team. They went undefeated through the district. It looks like they have earned a significant berth in the playoffs and we're going to hope that in the next couple of weeks they'll wind up in the national finals for the NAIA. So that's really a marvelous thing. That's the first time in the history of the school any team has ever gone undefeated in district. So that's been uh, 60 years in coming. So we're very, very thankful for their great effort. This morning we want to go back to our look at the disciples and talk a little bit about the kind of people Jesus uses. Now remember, we started off with a look at Isaiah, the kind of man that God uses to reach a nation in crisis. And then our last look at this particular subject took us into the disciples and we looked at the first four, Peter, James, John and Andrew And in about a half an hour that we have this morning. I want us to look quickly at the next four in the lists of disciples But before we do that, let me just kind of um, give you an overall Introduction to what I want to share with you. The question we're posing is what kind of people can God use? and as you think about that question and look through the history of the people God has used It becomes a very, very interesting list. For example, God used Noah, who was a drunk, who behaved himself in an immoral way. God used Abraham, who doubted God, who lied about his wife, who committed adultery. God used Isaac, who sinned as his father had taught him how, lying about Rebekah to Abimelech. God used Jacob, who extorted the birthright from his brother Esau and deceived his father and whose children were grossly immoral. God used Joseph, who was a total outcast in his family. God used Moses, who murdered a man and acting in pride disobeyed God to steal glory for himself by hitting the rock when God told him to speak to it. God used Aaron. The brother of Moses who led Israel in the worship of the golden calf and the attendant activities. God used Joshua, a man who was deceived by the Gibeonites to the degree that he made a treaty with them rather than defeat them and sentenced Israel to endless trouble. God used Gideon, a man who had no confidence in himself and questioned God's plan and even God's power. God used Samson, the lustful, long-haired lover of an evil woman. No comment. God used Ruth. God used Ruth, an accused and the cursed Moabitess. God used Samuel, who began to serve God when he was even a little child. God used David, the ladies' man, adulterer, murderer, poor father, man with bloody hands. God used Solomon, who was a compromising, money-mad polygamist. And so it goes. God used Isaiah, who was a tough, strong-minded man who put his trust in a human king. God used Ezekiel, who was equally resolute, strong-minded. God used Daniel, educated in the wisdom of the bitter and hasty Chaldeans. God used Hosea, who married a harlot, whose name was Gomer. I'd say anybody marrying a girl named Gomer is asking for some kind of trouble. <laughs> God used, God used Jonah. Jonah, who defied him in direct disobedience and took a short ride on a long fish. God used Habakkuk, who questioned God and his plan. God used Elijah, who could handle 850 false priests and false prophets, but ran like a maniac from one woman named Jezebel. God used Paul, who murdered Christians. God used Stephen, who was so tactless as to infuriate people until they stoned him to death. God used Timothy, who was ashamed to be named as a representative of Jesus Christ. You look at the list and it's sort of the list of the unqualified, isn't it? It's amazing who God uses. Now, we're looking in our study at four more people that God used, this kind of portrait of God's family. Today, I want to share with you these four. Philip, Nathaniel, Thomas, and Matthew. They're the second group among the disciples, and they are a fascinating little sortie who apparently hung together. We've already looked at group one and we learned that God uses people like Peter, people who people who are dynamic, strong, bold leaders who take charge, who initiate, who plan, strategize, confront, who command people, who often talk a better life than they live, who act too soon and eager to be forgiven and restored. We find God uses people like Andrew, humble, gentle, unconspicuous, seeks no prominence, seeks individuals, not crowds, and is always quietly bringing someone to Christ. And then God uses the zealous, passionate, bold, uncompromising, task-oriented, insensitive, ambitious men like James, who see only the job to do and how to get it done. And he uses sensitive, loving, believing, intimate truth-seekers like John, who speak the truth in love and attract men to Christ and who live obedient lives. Now let's look at group two. Number one is Philip. To find out about Philip, by the way, his name name means lover of horses for what it's worth. John chapter one. I want to show you just a little bit about Philip because really all we know is a little bit about Philip. His name is a Greek name, by the way. He probably had a Jewish name, but we don't know what it was. All of the twelve were Jews. He was a Jew. No doubt had a Jewish name. We, as I said, just don't know what it was. He was a fellow townsman with uh, Peter and Andrew, perhaps a friend of theirs, and a God-fearing Jew. The first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, say absolutely nothing about him. The only thing we know about him we find in the Gospel of John, and John gives him a personality. John chapter 1, and we'll look at verse 43. Now the next day he purposed to go forth into Galilee, and he found Philip. Speaking of Christ, he found Philip. And Jesus said to him, follow me. So here Jesus calls this man Philip. Now what we know about him, he was from Bethsaida of the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Now notice please, Jesus found Philip. This is the first person Jesus sought. Jesus found Philip. But Philip also had a seeking heart and Philip, verse 45 says, found Nathanael. And he said to him, we have found him of whom Moses wrote, meaning we have found the Messiah. And then of course, Nathanael says, well, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip says come and see and again we are reminded that the greatest source for evangelism is friendship Philip was found by Christ and Philip went immediately and found his friend Nathaniel the 12 were really a sort of a one by one group as Jesus picked one and he brought another and another and another there was this multiplication process and we see Philip kind of in this mode he appears not to be a preacher as such We don't have any sermons of Philip. He didn't write any books. We we don't know what he said particularly, but he seemed to be committed to relationships. He had a buddy, and his buddy was Nathaniel, and from here on out, they're always listed together. Every time there's a list of disciples, it's always Philip and Nathaniel, or Philip and Bartholomew, same guy, two names. So he's always associated in a one-on-one relationship, and no doubt when they were sent out two by two, he was partnered up with Nathaniel or Bartholomew. So again, he's he's one of those kind of people who goes after people on a one-on-one basis rather than being a well-known preacher. Go over to chapter 6 of John's Gospel. We see him again here, and we get a little more insight into him. It says in chapter six, verse five, Jesus lifted up his eyes and seeing that a great multitude was coming to him, said to Philip, where are we to buy bread that these may eat? Now, the fact that Jesus asks Philip this question indicates that Philip must have had some responsibility for acquiring food. Maybe he was the purchasing agent for the twelve. It was his job to to locate resources as they traveled around to make the feeding arrangements. Now You can imagine that must have been a kind of a serious responsibility. I mean, there weren't restaurants as such in those days. Now, you had to really make your own meal. You had to go fishing or procure fish from a fisherman. You had to to raise your own animals or find some meat from someone else, and it would have been a difficult situation. And, of course, having to do it three times a day, it becomes a major enterprise. If you ever visit a third world country today, you find that they basically survive simply because they live to eat. We don't understand that in our culture with all of the... Options that we have and so he must have had the responsibility for procuring food or at least that's an assumption that we can draw tentatively Here we are Jesus on a hillside. He's got 5,000 men plus women and children maybe 20 25,000 30,000 people They have nothing to eat and so he speaks to Philip and says where are we going to buy the bread that these may eat implying that this must have been Philip's normal duty now Philip probably was used to figuring out how much food it would take to feed the group at hand. And he's got a small problem now. He's got a crowd of about 20 to 30,000 people. And he starts calculating in his mind how this whole deal is ever going to come off. Follow what he said. Verse 6. And this he was saying to test him. What was he trying to test? What was he trying to test in Philip? Testing his what? His faith. His faith. For he himself knew what he was intending to do. Jesus knew he wasn't going to go shopping for these 30,000 people. He knew what he was going to do. He knew he was going to create food. He was just going to create fish. And he was going to create bread right out of his hands. And he wanted to test Philip and see if Philip would believe that that could be done. Well, Philip answers in verse 7. says, well, I'll tell you this. Two hundred denarii worth of bread isn't sufficient for them for everyone to receive a little. He says, Lord, look, if we take 200 denarii, denarius was one day's wage, if we take a total of 200 denarii, we cannot buy enough food to feed these people, even if everybody takes one bite. Now, what do we learn from that about Philip? He was calculating. He was a bottom line guy rather than a visionary. I mean, his response might have been, Lord, I don't know what we're going to do, but you can handle it. I trust you, why don't you just create the food? No, he doesn't say that. He's very calculating. He's very analytical. He figured we could raise 200 denarii, and that wouldn't even make a dent in this crowd. Usually, one denarius would buy 12 wheat biscuits, or 36 barley biscuits. The size of your hand and about an inch and a half thick. But that wouldn't be anywhere near enough for twenty to thirty thousand people. So what do we learn about Philip? Analytical, pragmatic, pessimistic. It can't be done. We don't have the money for this. Every organization has people like this. There's, there's always someone who will tell you you don't have the money to do it. He would like to help these people, but it just can't be done. It's absolutely impossible. One writer said that a great leader is someone who has a sense of the possible. Philip had the sense of the impossible. He had had learned that with Christ all things were possible. He knew too much arithmetic to be adventurous. Christ was trying to teach him about faith and all he could see was what he could handle in his own hands. Go to chapter 12. Chapter 12 and verse 20 we get the next little scenario in which Philip pops up. There was a certain Greek group among those who were going up to worship at the feast. They were moving toward Jerusalem for Passover. And they came to Philip. Apparently, Philip was the Greek connection. He has this Greek name. He may have been trained in Greek culture. Anyway, the Greeks came to Philip. And they began to ask him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. These are Gentiles. They want to see Jesus. Now what does Philip do? Philip came and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip came and they told Jesus. Now here we find something else about Philip. He's not too decisive, right? He has an opportunity. Here come a bunch of Gentiles. We want to see Jesus. Peter would have said, oh, come on. But Philip doesn't make decisions. He's not decisive. He's not confronted. He's not forceful. He may have been very warm and somewhat approachable. And he's also concerned because he remembers that Jesus said, I am not come but for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And he doesn't know for sure whether the program permits Gentiles. And he goes by the book, does Philip. It's always the bottom line. What does the book say and how much money do we have? Going strictly by the book, he he lacks passion. He lacks that evangelistic zeal. He's very analytical, so he defers to Andrew. He feels safe without having to make the decision. He would rather get somebody else and make them responsible. That's Philip. Go to chapter 14. This will tell you something else about him. Chapter 14, verse 8. Philip says to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father. And it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been so long with you and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How do you say, show us the Father, you blockhead? How dull can you be after three years? How thick? How unclear? No wonder your faith is so weak. You don't even know who I am. Show us the Father. What he means is prove. Prove that you're the way to God. Jesus has said, I am the way. No man comes to the Father but by me. And Philip says, well, if that's really true, prove it to us. You See, he's always bottom line oriented, very analytical, very pessimistic, very skeptical, always concerned to see he has a very inadequate faith, a very imperfect understanding. He is not a man of vision like John. He is not a man of insight like John. He is not a man able to plumb the deep things of God. He's an analytical, skeptical, pessimistic, reluctant, insecure, unsure Non-confrontive man. His faith is limited to what he can see, what he can count. Limited to the rules that have been laid down and he wants proof for everything. You want to know something? The Lord can use a person like that. Used Philip. Spent all his life preaching. Tradition tells us this is how he died. They stripped him naked. They pierced through his ankles... And they pierced through his thighs, and they hung him upside down till he died. And he was faithful to the Lord to death. His buddy was named Nathaniel. You want to know about Nathaniel? Go back to John chapter 1 again. Nathaniel was also a sort of nondescript person. We don't know any more about him than just one passage. Just one passage. Here in John chapter 1, verse 45 says, Philip went and found Nathanael, told him they had found the Messiah. And Nathanael said to him, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Now the first thing we learn about Nathanael was he was prejudiced. He was prejudiced. I mean, that's not a nice thing to say. That'd be like saying, well, you know, there's a great uh, leader in um Fresno. And somebody says, can any good thing come out of Fresno? How about Bakersfield? Would you buy that? (laughs) Maybe Wasco. That's prejudice. That's prejudice. What makes it ridiculous is that Nathaniel was from Bethsaida. Which was to Nazareth what Bakersfield is to Fresno. It's the pot calling the kettle black, you know. Can anything good come out of that hick town, Nazareth? Oh, he had a little bit of prejudice. And he himself lived in an even more obscure village. Cana, actually. But there were a lot of those little villages there. he is showing his prejudice beyond that verse 46 leads us into an introduction to Christ because philip says come and see and jesus saw nathaniel coming to him and he said of him behold an israelite is indeed in whom is no deceit no hypocrisy here comes nathaniel philip's bringing him and jesus sees him coming and says look There's an Israelite, a true Israelite. An Israelite indeed. What does that mean? A true Jew. Not all Israel is Israel. Remember that in Romans 2? Not every Jew was a true Jew. Not every Jew was a saved Jew. Not every Jew was a believing Jew. Here was a believing true Jew without hypocrisy. Boy, that was a novel thing in that time, wasn't it? What do we hear Jesus saying about the Jewish leaders at the time of of his life? In Matthew 23, he called them all what? Hypocrites. That was pretty common. But here was a true Jew, a matter of, of utter sincerity, had captured his heart. He had truly devoted himself to the true God. He was looking for the Messiah. His heart was right. He was a Jew in character as well as by race, without hypocrisy. So Nathaniel says to Jesus, verse 48, how do you know me? How do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. This is amazing. This is supernatural. How do you know me? Well, I saw you under the fig tree. Does that tell us anything about Nathaniel? Well, it tells us he had a fig tree. (laughs) Is that significant? Sure. Many people in Palestine had a fig tree. You know why they had a fig tree? They, they would grow a fig tree by their house. A house in that time would be one room, full of people, full of activity, full of kids. Typically, they would plant a fig tree and it would grow to a height of about 15 feet and a width of about 25 feet. It was just a big, wide shade tree. It was customary to put this thing right by the house so that you could get out of the house and have a private place. One writer says, in Palestine, the houses of the poorer people had only one room. And often when they sought quietness to pray and meditate, they sought privacy beneath the shade of a fig tree. In effect, Jesus is saying this to Nathaniel, I saw you when you were in the private place of prayer. I saw you when you were meditating. I saw you when you were in the study of the word of God. I saw you in the time of your devotions. And I saw your heart, and I saw your true desire, and I saw that you seek to know the truth. So what he's saying, I saw you under the fig tree, he means, I am aware of your spiritual life. Nathaniel answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And it wasn't just that he saw him under a fig tree it was that he saw what being under the fig tree indicated about the reality of his heart and Nathaniel knew that this man knew his thoughts and attitudes and he concluded he must be the Messiah he must be the king And Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You shall see greater things than these. If you think that's something, wait till you see me rise from the dead. He was a sincere guy. We don't know any more about him. At all. Except that. He was a seeker of truth. He wasn't perfect. He had some prejudice. But he wasn't bound by it. He was honest. He was open. He was not a hypocrite. He was a man of prayer. He was a man of meditation. He was a man who had made a complete surrender in one moment to the Messiahship and the kingship of Jesus Christ. And so we can conclude that God will use the slow, mechanical, analytical, weak faith skeptics like Philip... And the very opposites, like Nathaniel. Men of great faith, clear understanding, meditative. The third guy in group two has a name you will all recognize. Matthew. Look at Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9. Verse 9. And as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting in the tax office. He said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Now I want to tell you a little bit about Matthew. This guy fascinates me. This man is a traitor to his people. Let me tell you how the system worked. Matthew was a Jew collecting taxes for the Romans. The Romans were an occupying army in Palestine. The Jews hated Gentile oppressors, Gentile invaders. They hated to be under the control of Rome. They despised it. It was that leverage, by the way, that created all the havoc in the life of Pilate. They hated to be under Roman control. And what happens is, when the Roman government moved into that territory, They wanted to fund their operation in that area and in other parts of the world. So they exacted taxes out of the nations they occupied. So they put taxes upon all the Jews and then they hired Jews to collect taxes from their own people to be given to the Romans. When a Jew bought a tax franchise, he bought a fortune for life. He made himself instantly rich The price was high In fact, the Roman government said We want so much And anything the tax collector got beyond that He put in his own pocket Remember Zacchaeus Who was a Jew Who collected taxes Who had defrauded the people all his life And become a very wealthy man And when he was saved that day When Jesus called him out of a tree He gave back to everyone that he had defrauded Four times what he had taken Remember that? That's how wealthy they were. So he had bought a tax franchise from the Roman government. There were abuses beyond belief among the tax collectors. They took whatever they wanted from whomever they wanted. By the way, they were, when they bought the tax franchise, immediately barred from the synagogue for life. They were forbidden to ever appear in a court case in Israel. Because they were viewed as criminals, they were the scum of the earth. There were two kinds of tax collectors: the gabai, and that's not because when you gave them their money you said goodbye, G A B B A I. The gabai and the mokesh. Let me tell you the difference because it's very interesting. The gabai was a general tax collector; he collected tax on ground property tax income tax and poll tax. But the Mokish collected duty on goods. Import, export, all items bought and sold, tolls on roads, bridges, harbors, tolls on axles on your cart, tolls on hoofs on your donkey, tolls on packages, tolls on letters. And what they did was they sat at the key crossroads. And collected taxes from everybody going every direction and just kept piling it in and piling it in. Sent the peace that Rome required, kept the rest. Now, that's what Matthew was. He was a mokish. They could be called a great mokish if they hired other people to work the other roads. And if they worked alone, they were called a little mokish. So Matthew was a little mokish. He sat at his own custom station, making his money. Jesus came by one day, and called to Matthew the little Mokish, and said, follow me. And people would have thought, this is ridiculous. Who in the world, in their right mind, would ever want to pick up this scum of Israel for any enterprise? He is a materialist, he is a crook, he is a criminal. He is the worst of sinners. It shocked the religious establishment to their heels. Why? Because in verse 19 it says Matthew, verse 9 it says Matthew rose and followed him. Now follow the story. And it happened that as he was reclining at the table in the house, behold, many tax gatherers and sinners came and were dining with Jesus and his disciples. See, that's his his pals. Matthew was such a crumb that all his buddies were sinners and tax collectors. And Jesus and the disciples came in to join them. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why is your teacher eating with the tax gatherers and the sinners? When he heard this, he said, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice, for I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. Boy, does he indict those self-righteous Pharisees. What's going on here? What is this verse 10 thing of reclining at a table? I'll tell you what it is. Matthew called a banquet. As soon as Matthew was saved, as soon as he had received the knowledge of Jesus Christ and determined to follow him, he threw a banquet for all of his sinful friends. And he invited Jesus to be the guest. This is the first original evangelistic banquet. He was aware of his sin. He opened his heart and made a full, clear break with everything. He dropped all of that stuff and he followed Jesus Christ. It was a true conversion. In some ways, it was a greater act of faith and a greater act of devotion to Christ than the fishermen. All they left was was a legitimate enterprise. They were God seekers. Matthew was a criminal. He was a sinner. He was irreligious. And yet, he had great faith. He made a total surrender to Christ. He was willing to forsake everything. There's a humbleness about him. There's a quietness about him. He obviously knew how to get along under the authority of Rome. He knew how to keep books and keep records. He was well versed in Judaism. By the way, in his gospel alone, he quotes the Old Testament 99 times. So he wasn't an ignorant Jew. By the way, Matthew quotes the Old Testament more times than Luke, Mark, and John put together. So he really knew the Old Testament. He must have been a man terribly terrorized in his spirit. Because as much of the Old Testament as he knew, to sell his soul to Rome must have left him with a tremendously guilty conscience. And maybe when Jesus called him, there was an unburdening of a tremendous anxiety. Luke 5.29 says that he called the feast and had it in his own house. And he called all the riffraff of society the tax collectors and the prostitutes and the criminals and the outcasts and everybody else that was the wretchedness of the culture and he put on a banquet to introduce them to Jesus Christ what kind of people does God use? converted sinners of the worst order the last guy just briefly in group two is named Thomas you remember him? Thomas called Didymus what does Didymus mean? Twin he had a twin brother We learn a little bit about him in John's Gospel. Let me just quickly show you what John says about Thomas, and I'll sum it up because our time is gone. He was a man of courage. We know that. John chapter 11, verse 14. Jesus, uh, speaking about Lazarus being dead and so forth. And he's going to go to Jerusalem. Verse 16, Thomas, therefore, who is called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, Let us go also, that we may die with him. He says, if he goes to Jerusalem, they're going to kill him. We'll all go and die. I like his courage, don't you? He was devoted to Christ. He was willing to go and die. He was prepared to go to Bethany where Lazarus had lived and where he was buried. And it was adjacent to Jerusalem. It was one of the suburbs of Jerusalem, two miles east. And he knew the authorities in Jerusalem were determined that Jesus should die. So he said, let's go and die. He also was a little on the pessimistic side. Wasn't really much of a trusting person, but he was courageous, and I commend him for his courage. Look at chapter 14. It says about him there, verse 5, Thomas said to Jesus, Lord, we do not know where you are going. You keep telling us you're leaving. Where are you going? How do we know the way? When Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no man comes to the Father but by me. And again, you see his pessimism. First, he says, Well, let's go and die. Then Jesus says, I'm going away. And what does he say? Well, that's the end of that. We have no idea where he's going. We have no idea how to get there. We'll never, we'll never make it. And his heart is nearly broken as he speaks. Chapter 20 of John's Gospel in verse 24. Thomas, one of the twelve called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came after the resurrection. The other disciples were saying, we have seen the Lord. And he said, unless I shall see in his hands the imprint of the nails, and put my finger into the place of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. What a pessimist. He won't even accept the testimony of all the other disciples. He says, if I can't see him, and I can't touch him, I'll never believe it. He was a sad guy. He was a pessimistic, melancholy, moody, doubting guy. Until uh, the Lord showed up, verse 26. After eight days again, his disciples were inside, Thomas with them. This time he went to church. Jesus came, the doors having been shut. That was good. He came through the wall, stood in the midst and said, peace be with you. You know why I said that? Because they'd be real rattled if somebody came through the wall. Peace. And he said to Thomas, I love this. Reach here your finger. See my hands. Reach here your hand. Put it into my side. Be not unbelieving, but believing. You know what it doesn't say? It doesn't say Thomas ever did that. It just says Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are they who didn't see and yet believe. God can use even the pessimistic people with the weak faith who have to see. Well, it's kind of comforting, isn't it? Philip, skeptical, mechanical, slow to believe, analytical with no vision. Nathaniel, meditative, open, honest, sincere, prayerful, seeker for truth with a touch of prejudice. Matthew, an outcast, traitor, extortionist, thief, money-hungry, greedy tax collector whose whole community of friends were the riffraff of society. Thomas, a pessimist with a heart of love without equal, who was always ready to believe the worst. I don't see any stained glass saints, do you? Just common people. But they're the people God uses. Next time, the last four. Let's pray.